Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. I was at the library and I was checking out and a woman who was checking me out uh, was somebody who had a pretty thick accent, you know, and she was struggling to find vocabulary. And I asked her, I said, do you, uh, I said, what's your, what's your original language? And she said, uh, Turkish. And, uh, and then on Tuesday, I was at a Bible study, and there was a woman there, and she mentioned that her son-in-law uh, was from Turkey. And both people, I said, that's really interesting, because this uh, coming week, I'm going to be preaching at my church, and we're going to be talking about Turkey. And... Uh, there it is, uh, up on the screen, uh, circled right there. I think many of you know Handemir. Uh, his country is, uh, his native country is all the way to the far right, Uzbekistan. They're surrounded by Turkish-speaking uh, countries right there. Anyway, um, we're going to be actually going into a series here uh, about the seven letters from the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 to 3. And these letters are all written to churches that are actually in uh, Western Turkey. And so we're going to, just, let's just start off, I'll show you what it says. We're not going to be going through the whole book of Revelation, just looking at these seven letters. But let me give you the introduction to uh, and give you some context about why these letters were written. So uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 3. It says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. I think there's always a blessing anywhere you go in the Bible, right? But this is a book that explicitly tells us we're going to get blessed just by reading it. And then we're going to get blessed also if we take it to heart. So we got some good stuff in store here. Uh, And then John identifies himself in verse 9. And this is the disciple... Uh, who was following Jesus when Jesus had his ministry here on earth. And most people think, uh, and I do too, that he was a really young man uh, when uh, Jesus called him to be a disciple and during those three years. Uh, We think he might have been a teenager or 19, 20 years old. You can certainly see it the way he acts in the Gospels. He's just young and unfinished, right? But very close to Jesus. And now he's an old guy. Right? And he says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. So Patmos, there's a picture of it today, and it's this little island that's in the Aegean Sea off the coast of western Turkey there. And you can see it in the inset map uh, circle right there, the island of Patmos. Uh, Patmos is kind of small, like it has almost exactly the same geographical uh, size as the city of Broadview Heights. It's about 3.4 square miles. And today it has about 3,000 people living there. 
Uh, and it's kind of a tourist uh, attraction simply because of its reference here in the book of Revelation. So people are like, yeah, hey, I got to see, I got to see that little island. And you can see it. It looks kind of beautiful right there. But, you know, it was a place of exile for John. They're going like, look, at, uh, you're dangerous. You know, we're going to put you out there on this, this little island. Uh, and then uh, in verse 10, um, Jesus appears uh, to John. And he says, it was the Lord's day. So probably a Sunday, like, just like today. And I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, And those are seven cities that are all in western Turkey. And you can see them on a map there. And each uh, of these cities, each of these churches had a distinct, different characteristic Something, and we're, we're going to be able to learn something from each one of these distinct churches. And those dots each are about 50 miles apart from each other, a little bit more. So you kind of get the idea. And then, uh, you know, Patmos was off the coast, a western coast there, uh, from those cities in western Turkey. And uh, now John's trying to describe this supernatural Jesus. Remember that he had spent like three years with Jesus when Jesus is here in the flesh and he's looking like a regular guy, you know, construction worker, which was his business before he uh, his, started his ministry. And now all of a sudden he's seeing the supernatural Jesus and it blows him away. It says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the son of man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. I mean, he's trying to describe something supernatural, and he's using whatever imagery he can find here to describe it to us. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held ten stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I mean, the fear of God just falls on John. He's going, whoa. And, and that's the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? I mean, this, he's ready to hear this message. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. He's going, look at I made this world. And he's going, I got the last word. You know, I'm the one here. And then he says, I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, Hades, the place of the dead. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. So the first part of Revelation, basically chapters 2 through 5, are chapters about what's going on during John's time, including these letters. And then the other stuff later in the book from chapter 6 on are all things that are going to be happening in the future. And we're not going to be covering that. We're just going to be looking at those first, uh, at the chapters 2 and 3. And so today we're going to look at the second letter, the letter to Smyrna. Uh, so Doug's going to double back next week when he returns from the bike trip. And he's going to do the first letter, the one to uh, Ephesus. But we're, today we're going to look at 
the letter to Smyrna. Now, there's a picture of Smyrna today, and Smyrna has about 4 million people in it, and it's basically the same uh, metropolitan area population as Seattle. Uh, and it's a seaport, and it's a, a beautiful place, and it's, it's quite well-to-do, uh, comparatively speaking, with the rest of Turkey. And today it's not called Smyrna anymore. It's called Izmir. That was a name given to it early 20th century. Okay, so anyway, that's uh, this, the, the um, city that this letter is going to. And it's a suffering church. And so this is one that's really distinct in that particular way. And I believe this is a word that you and I in the church of Broadview Heights, we need to be hearing this morning too. And I'll tell you why. Because in 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes this. He goes, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. Personally, I didn't want to hear that word. You know, I'm going like, I just want a nice, warm, fuzzy thing. You know, make me feel nice and comfortable when I leave church here. I can go like, ah, feeling good. But he's going, no, no, everyone who wants to live that godly life in Christ will suffer persecution and the evil people are going to flourish in this world. And uh, I'm going to read you the whole letter right now. It's just four verses long. So here it is. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who is dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. So I was thinking about this letter uh, for the last few weeks and praying about this, and I came up with three things that um, I call them three hard truths that I want to share with you this morning from the, this letter. The first one is, with faith comes suffering. And the second is that suffering is a kind of testing. And number three, we don't have to win in this world. So first of all, with faith comes suffering. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that every aspect of the Christian life involves suffering, if you think about it. And the first thing, I mean, it's like, it's connected with our trusting in the Lord. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, don't be intimidated in, in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them they're going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved even by God himself. And then look what he says here in 29. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. He's going, it's actually a privilege. And I think that'll become clear as uh, we go through this. So I think the start of the Christian life is always repentance, isn't it? Repentance, at, which leads to obedience, you know, because we're following the Lord, right? But there's no repentance or obedience without suffering. I'm just finishing this book called Life Sentence. Uh, 
nonfiction book about this gang leader in uh, Baltimore, in Sandtown, you know, just a notorious area of uh, selling drugs and stuff like this. And this guy, uh, his name was Montana Baronet. Kind of a cool name, right? But he um, had this gang called TTG, Train to Go, right? And these guys sold a lot of heroin there. And uh, during his time, he actually finally, they arrested him when he was 21. He killed between 10 and 20 people uh, as part of his business. You know, anybody that was a potential informer, anybody who was like a rival, gang leader, stuff like that. And he, he and his gang, they were very, very good with this. And I was thinking, like, what would it take for a guy like that to repent? What would that be like? I mean, if he would repent, he'd have to give up money, right? He was making up to $50,000 a week, $50,000 a week in this lucrative drug sales that he had going on there. Gone, right? All these vacations that he and the gang took to... Cancun and Miami and Atlanta and L.A. and all these other places, gone. All the fame that he had. He was just like, everybody went, wow, this guy is amazing, you know? And he put songs uh, on the internet where he would celebrate his murders and stuff, written just in such a way that, you know, it was hard to specifically pin down who or what. I actually listened to uh, one of them going, whoa. You know, and but everybody went, man, he is like great. And the women, as soon as he kind of had this reputation of being a killer, he couldn't stop the women from coming and going, you are great. I want you. I want he, he by the time he's 21, he's got five kids by four different women. I mean, and all of this. And then plus, if he becomes a believer, he's got to confess. Right. And pay the punishment for what he has done. And he's going to end up in prison the rest of his life. You know, I'm saying, like, that is like repentance and obedience. And that's painful. That's suffering. Now, you know, you and I don't live flamboyant, extreme lives like that. But every single one of us here, we've got stuff in our lives where we are tempted, right? And it's stuff like, oh, this would be fun or this would be pleasing or I need this to do this for my job or or this is the only way I can really get by and succeed and stuff like that. And to give it up, to repent, to obey the Lord, that is painful. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be temptations if they weren't like desirable to us. And so just the very walk of being a Christian involves suffering on some, on some level. It's not an easy thing. You know, and then, you know, let's face it, believers are nonconformists. Jesus is calling us to a countercultural walk. You know, Flannery O'Connor, the, the great Christian novelist of the 20th century, said this, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. And that's true, right? We're swimming against the tide. So the culture is going, hey, this is what's cool. This is what's acceptable. This is the way we roll. And we're going like, I can't do that stuff. I can't, you know, I've, I can't conform to the way that society is going. And that's a painful thing. You know, I'm thinking, you know, there's so many illustrations of how most people will do anything to conform. This woman right here, Elizabeth Gilbert, is a, a famous author. 
She wrote uh, the, the book Eat, Pray, Love, and this was, you know, made her a lot of money in different venues. And uh, recently, she wrote this young adult novel called uh, The Snow Forest, and she got a whole bunch of one-star reviews, all of them suspiciously identical in verbiage, denouncing the book because it's set in Russia. Now, the Russians in the book are villains. It's a bad place to be, but it was set in Russia, and all these reviews went, you know, this is so insensitive because people who live in the Ukraine will, be, will feel pain when they read this book. And so, without you know, any hesitation, she withdrew the book from publication. She go, okay, I cancel myself. I want to conform. I don't want criticism. And as believers, we're going to face criticism for our lives, for the things, the choices that we make. And that's going to be a painful thing, too. I'm thinking of like this picture for the Blue Jays, Anthony Bass, uh, to illustrate the idea of no non-conforming without suffering. Bass is a Christian guy, and he happened to repost something on social media that questioned why baseball teams, you know, MLB teams were celebrating Pride Month and having, you know, like big uh, stuff in their stadiums for that. His team canned him. And in their statement of talking about why they released him, they said, we want unity on our team. You know, we have to have the same message right here. That, you know, he makes a million and a half a year. I mean, this tells me two things. Number one, baseball players make too much money. And number two, it tells me that conformity is what our culture is insisting upon. And you dare not, you know, step away from that. I'm thinking of uh, Maureen Martin, who ran for borough uh, president in London, you know, one of the boroughs around there, ran for mayor, it was. And, uh, and in her uh, campaign literature, she decided she would just give all her views so that the voters would know what she believes about, about everything. She's a Christian woman. And in one of her, view, one of her um, statements, she said, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Well, she lost her job. She had a job with the Housing Authority in London for 13 years, an exemplary record. But they said because of what she believes, that is considered reprehensible behavior, and they fired her from her job. You know, no nonconforming without suffering. And then as believers, we're called to endure, even when things ramp up and get worse and worse and worse. In Revelation 2.10, it says, he says in this letter, if you remain faithful, even facing death, I'll give you the crown of life. That's real endurance. It might come down to that in some situations. The people who lived in Smyrna had to deal with the cult of Caesar. That was the civic religion. So, I mean, their coins that they had had inscriptions like divine Julius, you know, Caesar, Caesar Augustus was the divine Augustus. And once a year, everybody in Smyrna was required to give a pinch of incense, of incense at the, uh, the local temple, and they were required to say these three words, Caesar is Lord. You had to do that to stay as a citizen in good standing, and the punishment was death. Everybody's got to do that. And Christians are going... Caesar is not Lord. That's a lie. 
Jesus is Lord. And so they had to pay a price. That's what the letter predicted was going to happen. Suffering. You know, later on, the, the people who hid out and were able to maintain as Christians, the next thing that came was several centuries later in Smyrna, the invasion of, uh, of, of Muhammad and his empire. And so um, there was persecution from Islam, and many more Christians were killed. And then this all culminated in the early part of the 20th century with a genocide where the government systematically wiped out Christians from one coast of Turkey to the end. Over 2 million Christians lost their lives in this genocide. This genocide was something that Hitler said when they were his, his uh, subordinates were going, are you, are you talking about actually killing all the Jews? And Hitler said, who remembers the Armenian Christians? You know, he said, we can get away with it. That was the thing. You know, one of the big influencers of the Nazi genocide of the Jews. But again, no endurance without suffering. And so today in Turkey, there are relatively few Christians at all. It's one of the least Christianized countries in the entire world. And this is where the Christian church really had its, some of its earliest roots. You know, religious people are often the enemies of, of believers. Uh, it says in early part of the letter, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. If you look at that, that sticker that proclaims tolerance and it has all the symbols of like religions, you know, every one of those religions has persecuted believers. And you'll notice there's a symbol of the cross. Even Christians of one denomination have, have at times in history have persecuted other Christians. And um, what a, you know, you, why is this so dangerous? Because when people persecute in the name of religion, they believe that God's on their side and will stop at nothing. And so there's endurance that has to be that has to be maintained. You know, Jesus never downplayed the role of suffering in our lives. I was reading in this uh, Father's Day edition of National Review, and there was a, uh, an article by a columnist named Ricky Schlott. She's 22 years old, a columnist for the New York Post, uh, just graduated from New York University. And she's talking about uh, the fact that that males have a real disadvantage in today's dating culture. And she said this, an okay Cupid survey found that women rate 80% of men below average in attractiveness. That's kind of unfair, I think, you know? <laughs> I mean, men. I mean, maybe we're among the uh, 20% here uh, at Community of Hope. <laughs> but she's, her point is that Men in today's culture come from a real disadvantage when it comes to this whole like dating scene. So she had 20 different tips for young men. And I thought, well, I teach young men. You know, maybe I can pass some of these along to us poor, underprivileged, unattractive people, you know. And this is one of the things that she said. Uh, she said, no well-adjusted woman wants a man who is going to simp all over her. So I had to look that up. What, what does that mean, to simp all over? Well, apparently that means like to grovel and beg, and oh, I must have you, I need you, you know, and she's going, women are, are turned off by that. I believe she's right about that, by the way. But you know, when you think about like Jesus and his ministry, 
he never simped over anybody. He never begged anybody to follow him. You know, he basically many times discouraged people from following him. Like, here's a typical message that he gave to the crowds. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. He's going, you're going to have to make some really painful choices because you're going to incur some heavy duty opposition, even from loved ones. And even things in your own life you're going to have to say no to. And he says, if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. But don't begin till you count the cost. He's going, you better think it over. You really want to uh, follow me? It's going to cost you everything. It's going to be a painful thing at times. Better think it over. The second point is that our sufferings are tests. What do we consider infinitely valuable? I was really intrigued by uh, what it said in, in, uh, in verse 10 of the letter, where he says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. Now, you've got to understand that in the day this was written, they did not have prison for people to have 10-year, 20-year, 30-year sentences. The Romans are going, we're not going to invest in uh, prison as punishment. Prison was just a holding place temporarily before they executed you. Like, typically, if you went to jail, you can expect to be executed. You know, sometimes they would have a trial and you would get out, but typically you're there to die. So he's going, the devil is going to arrange for your death to test you. And I thought, man, this sounds so much like the book of Job, doesn't it? Remember in the book of Job, like Satan who's the tester right here, right? He comes to uh, God and he goes like, you know that, that guy Job who claims to be your follower? I can break that guy and he won't be your follower anymore. If I, make him, if I give him physical sickness so that he's in great physical pain, he'll quit. I know he'll lose his faith. And so the Lord goes, oh yeah? You know, I'll let you do that. And so he tests Job. And if you know the story in the book, Job passes the test. Job doesn't crack in the face of physical pain. Now, you know, if you've gone through physical pain, you know that's really a testing time, isn't it? It kind of makes you question everything. You're going like, is, do I really, can I really trust God? Can I really do that? And now he's saying, you know, Satan's going to bring you to the point where it's going to be your life. And so it's a test and I believe that even the small things in our lives are tests, if you think about it, because those temptations were, were really, it's really testing. Who's number one in my life? Is it Jesus or is it my job? Is it Jesus or is it this relationship? You know, is it Jesus or is this, this pleasure that I get from doing this thing that I know offends him, you know? Who is, who's really number one for me? Um, and I, you know, I, I think of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, an interesting guy, he actually, when he was a very young man, he was a disciple of John, who's writing this book. And later on, when Polycarp grew older, he became the leader of the church of Smyrna. And eventually, persecution ramped up. You know, when he talks about, you'll be thrown in prison for 10 days. There are times where all of a sudden it's like life or death, and other times it isn't, 
right? So here's this terrible time of persecution under the emperor Domitian, where Domitian's going, you kill all those people who don't say I'm Lord. And so it's like Polycarp is under the gun, right? He's the leader of the church. So the people in the church of Smyrna, they go, let's hide this guy. So he hides out at this farm. And uh, the, the Romans caught some guy who was part of the church who was in on the hiding, tortured him, and it was revealed, and Polycarp was found hiding in a haystack at this barn. So he's hauled into uh, this place, and uh, they're going like, and the Romans don't want to execute him. The guy's 86, and he's known to be a humble man and a kind man, and it's like even the non-believers really like the guy, but they're going like, look at, please, just say, just say Caesar is Lord. Just give your little pinch of incense, you know, just do it. They're embarrassed about this whole thing, and Polycarp's going, no, and they're going, we're going to burn you at the stake if you don't. He goes like, there's a worse fire for those who don't believe. And they said, just do it. And then Polycarp said this, for 86 years I've been a disciple of Jesus, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He endured, and they took him to the stake and burned him to death. You know, but he, he was faithful unto death, just like that, that letter had written. And I'm sure that was on his mind, because he knew the promise that if you're faithful unto death, you'll get that crown of life. And the third point I wanted to make here is that a believer's life is one of delayed gratification. You know, I think in our lives, um, we want it now, right? We're Americans and stuff. But if you look at these verses, like in verse 11, if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. You're not going to get a lot of, it's not going to be pleasant for you now, but there's a reward that's saved up. And then if you look at, uh, at verse 11 a little bit farther, Anyone with ears to, uh, to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Later on in the book of Revelation, the second death is identified as hell. It's a lake of fire. It's a terrible place. And it's, like, it's a place where the people who chose not to follow Jesus, people who, who said, I don't want to be part of that group of believers and live that kind of life. I don't want that. The Lord's going to give them their wish. But it says it's a terrible place. It's a place of darkness. It's a place where people gnash their teeth and regrets. They're going, oh, why did I do that? Why was I so stupid, you know, to end up in... And they're just going to... It's just like a horrible place where there's just no... None of the things that come from God, the things that beauty and truth and love and stuff that, that come from just the, the blessing of God in, in, this, in this world. But that's something that's a, a future reward to be not harmed by the second death. It's not going to be our best life now. You know, it's going to be, there's going to be some suffering that's involved with being a believer. You know, in this world, people are kind of divided into winners and losers, right? And uh, here's a winner in this world, Stalin that horrible dictator in Russia whose body count is higher than Hitler's. And he told a great uh, director, Sergei Eisenstein, one time when Eisenstein made a movie about Ivan the Terrible. He said, Ivan the Terrible could have staved off many of the problems in his reign and afterward 
when he had someone executed, he would spend a long time in repentance and prayer. God was a hindrance to him in this regard. He should have been more ruthless. Stalin was always ruthless, and he was, people would consider him a winner. In fact, today, people in Russia look back, and they go like, yeah, that guy was strong. He was, you know, that's the way we kind of need him. Going, yikes, you know, a winner in this world. And losers are people like Jessica Tapia. Just a recent story. A school teacher in uh, Riverside, California, taught PE to high school students, a coach uh, for, of uh, softball and, and basketball. And their policies were things she's going like, look, at, in order to carry out your policies, I'm going to have to lie. And I'm a Christian. And I cannot do that. So she applied for a religious accommodation. And uh, she's, uh, this is what the district wrote back in the letter where they fired her. They said, the district cannot accommodate your religious beliefs that prohibit you from maintaining a student's gender identity and refraining from disclosing a student's gender identity to his, her, their parents and guardians. In a, in a sense, they're saying, we insist that you lie to these parents. She's going, I, I cannot do that. I can't do that in good conscience. Just talking to a, a nurse from our church last night after the service, she said, that example really resonated with me because I am going through the same thing at the hospital where I'm at right now. And I'm just asking for prayers that uh, that, that situation you know, can be resolved, but I'm willing to lose my job. You know, but she's considered a loser in this world. But in God's sight, you know, we don't have to win in this world. And he says in verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty. This woman's lost her job. She's lost her, her stream of income. But she's rich, rich in God's sight. You know, that's what it's really all about in this world is being rich toward God. And, you know, here's a final word for us today. And it's from John 21. You know, earlier, John had written an eyewitness account of what he experienced when he followed Jesus for three years. And there was an event that happened at the end of the gospel there where John is with, he's a young man, right? And he's with Jesus, and he's with his friend Peter. And Jesus is talking to Peter, and John writes this down. And this is a good word for us today. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus let, said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. You know, and this is our story, isn't it? There was a time in every one of our lives where we did what we wanted to do, we said what we wanted to say, we enjoyed whatever we wanted to enjoy. It was all about us. And so we were like Peter was when he was a young man. But then what happened? Jesus revealed himself to us, and we fell in love with him. And we said, wow, this is my savior. This is the one who is, uh, you know, he's the one who's never going to let me down. And he came into our hearts, and now we're following him. But that's going to lead in different places, isn't it? And some are going to be hard, and some are going to be harder, and some are going to be harder yet. And he said, in Peter's life, it's like this is going to end up with him getting dragged where he doesn't want to go and, and actually paying you know, with his life. 
But he's saying, this is what's going to glorify God. And this is something we're going to be able to give Jesus, is that we're going to be able to, he's going to be able to look at our lives and he's going to say, wow, you thought I was more important than your job. You thought I was more important than your health. You thought I was more important than your very life. You thought I was more important than your relationships. That glorified me. That blessed me. He'll be glorified by this. And then he's saying, look, whatever way our lives go, whether it goes this way, this way, this way, whether we end up you know, with a lot of trouble, a little trouble, wherever that is, he's going, you just follow me, follow me. You just trust me and you follow me. So let's pray. You know, Lord, um, this is a word that I think I needed to hear, um, but I just want to thank you for the fact that no matter what our situation is or what happens to us, our circumstances, uh, you consider us rich because we know you and because we have this privilege of glorifying you in our lives. And Lord, there's testings that come and times of doubt, and I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us uh, no matter what happens. And I just sense that things are getting more and more tense here for us as believers here in America. Um, it's been tense for a long time in some other places and, and pretty difficult, especially for our brothers and sisters in Turkey. But Lord, we just gonna, we're just going to pray, Lord, that you bring us through and that we could faithfully say, yeah, I did follow you. I followed you, Lord, and you be glorified. And we pray this in the one who makes it possible to do things that are seemingly impossible in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.